Welcome to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders, hosted by Mike Sakopoulos and produced by the American Association for Physician Leadership. The pandemic has exposed deep-seated disparities in healthcare in our country. While some may debate the origins of these disparities, few would argue that they are not disturbing. Race and ethnic background factor into patient care. Today on Sound Practice, we will discuss race in medicine from both the provider and patient's perspective. My guest has thoughts and concrete suggestions on this topic, race, racism, and medicine, next on Sound Practice. My guest today is Dr. Shannon Prince. Dr. Prince holds a PhD in African and African-American studies from Harvard University. She received a law degree from Yale University and is the author of Tactics for Racial Justice. Dr. Prince, welcome to Sound Practice. Thank you so much for having me. It's my pleasure. Now, I'm about to to ask you a question that uses a a term that that you've um, used before. And you've used this term anti-racist uh, physician. Can you define that for our, our purposes of our discussion today? Sure. So an anti-racist physician is a doctor who recognizes that race can have a negative impact on one's life and on one's health and consciously works to mitigate those effects. So how does, how does one become an anti-racist physician? So the most important thing is to recognize that colorblindness can literally kill. So for example, it can be tempting to think of a non-white body as just a white body with more melanin. And that's actually not the case. The way systemic racism manifests itself results in all sorts of disparities, such as access to healthy food, access to clean air, whether or not we are vulnerable to stressors such as police harassment. People of different ethnic backgrounds age differently, they sicken differently. So if you're a physician, you need to be aware that you have to be on the watch for chronic disease in a black patient a decade earlier than you need to for a white patient. You need to recognize that a black woman is at a greater risk for maternal mortality than a white woman is. And then you also have to respect the fact that race not only determines how we get sick, it determines how we heal. So although uh, you should never assume that a patient of color is poor, it is important to recognize that in America, we have a wealth gap. White families have exponentially more wealth than families of color. The median white family has 22 times more wealth than the median Latino family. That white family has 41 times more wealth than the median Black family, and the average white family has 10 times the net worth of a non-white family. So why does that matter for medicine? If you're going to tell a patient, for your health, you need to eat healthy, well, that may not take into account the fact that if you're a community, if you're someone from a community of color who um, is more likely to be poor, you may live in a food desert. You may not have access to healthy food. 
if you tell a non-white person to exercise, you have to keep in mind that because of poverty, they may not live in a neighborhood where there are sidewalks that are safe to walk or jog on. They may live in an apartment that's too cramped to do cardio in. They may live in a neighborhood that's so polluted that if you go outside and try and exercise, you're going to trigger an asthma attack. And so you have to think about how to work through those issues with your patients. So the first step to being an anti-racist physician is not being color blind. It's seeing color and then treating the effects of color. Very interesting. Now, I would assume that our physicians occasionally encounter explicit racism. How should physicians respond to acts of explicit racism? So the first thing to keep in mind is that the time to decide how to respond to an act of explicit racism is not when it happens. It's not when the patient is there in the hospital bed or sitting on the table and saying, well, I don't want a doctor who is Asian or Hispanic or Black or Native American, and then everyone trying to decide in the moment what happens. You need to come up for a plan for what you'll do if the situation is an emergency, which of course is going to be to stabilize the patient, but also what to do if the situation is not an emergency. You can make a decision as a practice that if you have a family practice or you're a primary care physician and a patient is racist, you just won't treat that patient. But you need to look at all sorts of situations. What are you going to do if a child comes in with a racist parent? Make that plan before that incident happens. What are you going to do if a colleague is called a slur? Even if it's an emergency situation and in the moment, everyone is focusing on stabilizing that patient, after the incident occurs, don't pretend like nothing happened. Debrief about it, comfort that person. Understand how to be an active bystander so that if you're in a non-emergency situation and a patient says something racist about a colleague, you understand how to handle it. For example, you address the comment and not the patient. You say, you know, Mr. Doe, what you said was racist, as opposed to Mr. Doe, you are racist. You're very firm about the fact that you don't tolerate that behavior in your practice. And then you're just mindful of what your colleagues deal with, of the fact that when a doctor of color walks in the room in his or her scrubs, that doctor may be assumed to be an orderly. You need to know that your colleagues are dealing with that stress. You need to know how to support them in it. So just make a plan for how to deal with explicit racism and be clear that if it's not an emergency situation, you won't tolerate it, you will address it, and then you will check in with your colleague after the fact. Dr. Prince, for some people, these are difficult or at least uncomfortable discussions. How can physicians discuss and debate racism effectively? The most important thing about discussing and debating racism effectively is to listen, to listen to what the other person is saying and then offer a congruent response. So in my book, I give the example of being a healthcare provider in a healthcare facility and advocating for more diversity. You're the person you're in conversation with may have a range of reasons why they don't think the staff needs to be more diverse or they don't think that that should be a priority. You wanna make sure that you are responding to what their actual concern is. And the way you do that is by saying, 
So what I hear you saying is it's by trying to characterize their beliefs fairly and make sure you get it and then respond to it congruently. So for example, your colleague might say, you know, diversity is nice, but diversity doesn't affect patient care. And what you would say is not, oh, well, you're a racist. What you say is, so what I hear you saying is that why diversity is a good thing, it doesn't affect, you know, how we treat our patients. And then you give a congruent response. So you can cite to the George Mason University study that found that when Black newborns are cared for by Black doctors, they're three times less likely to die than when cared for by white doctors. And Black newborns in America are actually plagued by infant mortality relative to white newborns. And the study incidentally also found that when a white infant has a Black doctor, it's not at a greater likelihood of dying than when it has a white doctor. So you can show that diversity isn't just a frill. It really does have a positive effect on the care you give. Or you might say, so what I hear you saying is that the bottom line is no matter what one's skin color, everybody reads the blood pressure machine the same way. And then you can respond, well, yes, that's true. Everybody does read a blood pressure machine that's the same way, but the reason we should seek to hire more people of color isn't that they have this special cultural technique for reading a blood pressure machine. It's because people of color have been unfairly denied opportunity in our field or at our institution in the past. And justice requires that we rectify that. So you just, when you want to debate and discuss effectively, the key is to listen respectfully. That is a good lesson that needs to be learned by all levels of our society, I think. Um, <clears throat> how can physicians unweave systemic racism in the, in the medical field, Dr. Prince? It seems like these awful statistics that you're, you're able to, to so easily cite have been around for a while. Um, and our knowledge does not seem to translate into to action um, that seems to be called for by the very statistics. Can you can you help me? Can you give me some some hope and some uh, ways of moving forward? Sure. So one way is to be proactive about continuing your medical education to make sure that you're a doctor who can serve all patients competently. So in my book, I describe how most dermatology textbooks actually only have pictures of what skin disorders look like on white skin. So if you are trying to unweave that systemic racism, you need to be proactive about learning what skin disorders look like on skin that has various levels of melanin. Or for example, we know that when ch children have sickle cell disease, they are at risk of stroke. And there's actually a test that's been around for decades that can be given to screen children for this stroke because there's so little attention to sickle cell disease and how to treat it, which is not disjunctive from the fact that in America, people who suffer from sickle cell disease are mostly black. Physicians don't screen kids and the results are predictably devastating. They have these debilitating strokes that could have been prevented. And so being uh, unweaving systemic racism means understanding what populations of color need to be healthy and then shaping your own medical education so that you're equipped to provide that healthcare. 
Another thing to do is to what I call conducting a checkup on yourself. So for example, a 2016 study showed that half of white medical trainees believe things such as that Black people's nerve endings weren't as sensitive. And we see disparities in the amount of pain care that Black patients are given versus the care that white patients are given. Black patients are consistently giving less. So just ask yourself, when I see a Black person um, purporting to be in pain, am I more likely to think that that person is a drug seeker? Look back at the amount of medication you've given to different patients. Did you give more to similarly situated white patients than you did to black patients? Even though these are individual decisions and individual behaviors, they exist in the context of stereotypes that we have about whole populations and they result in systemic issues. So be proactive about pursuing your own medical education, and then do that checkup on yourself and reflect on how you practice. And is that a checkup that you think needs to be done with some regularity? Oh, absolutely. You know, it can be easy to get jaded. You can, for example, go into a hospital in an urban center, very um, confident and rightfully so in your anti-racist ethos. And then perhaps after you encounter some patients who are drug seekers, you start stereotyping all patients of color as drug seekers, or you become more cynical when someone says that they're in pain, not recognizing that Black people don't abuse drugs at higher rates than whites, and that if you were at a white hospital, you would also be encountering a certain amount of patients who are drug seeking. And so just recognize that people are dynamic, people are fluid. Uh, being racist isn't a permanent state, being anti-racist isn't a permanent state. It's something that you have to continue to be introspective about. Let's talk about the historic racism of the medical field and and I'm I'm sure that we could also talk about historic racism in in our profession the legal profession but this is a podcast for uh, the medical community so I'm interested in what advice you would have uh, Dr. Prince for physicians that are um, interested in or, or need to reckon with the legacy of historic racism in the medical field Sure. So I think it's important to orient yourself to past and continuing disparities. So for example, in my book, I talk about how cystic fibrosis, which is a genetic disease that primarily affects white Americans, gets three and a half times more research funding from the National Institutes of Health and 440 times more funding from national research foundations than sickle cell disease does, even though that's an equally serious genetically Ill, genetic illness, but it's an illness that primarily affects Black Americans, some Hispanic Americans. And this disparity occurs despite the fact that one third fewer Americans have cystic fibrosis than have sickle cell disease. So when one disease is getting that much more research dollars than another disease in the past and continue on into the present, that means that a cure is that much more proximate for that disease that we're investing in healing than for the disease that we're neglecting. And so it's important to 
look at those past disparities and think about how to rectify them. How can you serve your Black patients who have sickle cell disease? What do reparations, for example, look like in the medical context? Should you as a physician be advocating for reparations to invest in cures to diseases that affect Black people? Think also, for example, about the disparities in amputations. African-Americans are three times more likely to undergo diabetic amputations than non-Black patients, even though their amputations are often preventable. And if you look at a map of where people are most likely to get amputations, it actually maps onto which populations were most likely to have been enslaved. So we see that the injustices that occurred all the way back in the 19th century still affect disparities in how, people, how healthy people are and the treatment that they get. And so just being mindful of the fact that the past affects and it infects the present, and then think about how you can rectify that before you amputate that Black patient's leg just check, is there a solution I could offer? Is there some other treatment I would propose if this were a white patient? Again, check in with yourself, conduct that checkup on yourself, but be mindful that what you see today in your operating room, in your practice, is a function of what happened in the past. How can physicians make a significant anti-racist uh, uh, impact if she or he doesn't have formal leadership role at the time. So once you start doing all this homework, doing checkups on yourself, making a plan for how to handle explicit racism, make, continuing your medical education so that you can be a doctor equipped to serve all people, studying history. Once you're committed to not being colorblind, don't be what I call color mute. Talk about color share the knowledge you're learning, gather your colleagues, and it can be uh, through you giving a CME on caring for multicultural populations. You can invite your doctor friends to your practice and just hold a casual training. You can create an anti-racist physician reading group. And just on a regular basis, everybody reads an article in a medical journal about a health issue affecting a population of color, and then you all circle up and discuss your findings. You don't have to be the head of a department to initiate these efforts. Anyone can do that. And you can even start these practices while you're in medical school. Do you believe that uh, third party payers and insurance carriers, for example, uh, have any responsibility or duty to promote anti-racist medicine? Absolutely. And I think that one way they can do so is through the use of metrics. So for example, if insurance companies looked at how many Black people who um, they insure get amputations versus how many white people they insure get amputations or how many white patients get an alternative treatment to an amputation as opposed to Black people, they could see where there might be some um, disparate factors just because they have the data, they know what they're paying for. And then they could use that data, they could make it publicly available, for example. 
um, you know, with patient data redacted, they could make it available to medical schools. They could make it available to, um, they could publish an article in a medical journal. They could share those findings in Congress so that we could see that not everyone is getting the same treatment and third party payers are in a wonderful position to make that information available because they have the data. As we talk today, our country, certainly in pockets, continues to battle COVID-19. Do you believe that the pandemic has focused a light upon uh, racial disparities in healthcare? Absolutely. So we see that different uh, racial groups are have different likelihood of getting COVID and of dying from COVID. And that's for a range of public health reasons. We know, for example, that people of color are more likely to be essential workers, which means that they're more likely to come in contact with the disease. We know, for example, that if you are someone on the Diné, the Navajo reservation, you may not have running water. And so when you're being told, wash your hands for 20 seconds throughout the day, that's very hard to do when you don't have running water. And so doctors just need to be mindful of the fact that, you know, you can't be colorblind. Different patients are at different risks. They need different levels of care. And also that different patients are carrying different allostatic loads. And so when a person who already, because of racial disparities, had a lower baseline of health gets COVID, that COVID is going to manifest very differently in someone who had a higher baseline of health. And so just thinking about how all these public health factors affect your patients makes you more sensitive as you treat them. We've seen an increase in telemedicine as a result of the, the pandemic. Do you believe that telemedicine has created any kind of increased sensitivity of physicians regarding their patients' uh, daily lives? So I think that it's important to recognize that telemedicine is not a panacea, but it does offer uh, some wonderful resources for doctors. First, it can make doctors accessible to patients who otherwise would not be able to reach them for a range of reasons, lack of transportation, lack of child care, just a geographic gap between where the patient is and where the doctor is. Also, it allows you to look into somebody's home. You may be looking at them over Zoom and see the mold growing on the wall behind them and that affects your diagnosis. But it's also important to recognize that um, you know, telemedicine is not available to everyone and is disproportionately unavailable to racial minorities. So for example, a large chunk of Native American children live in homes that don't have access to the internet. And so I think that while uh, telemedicine can be a great resource, it's important to recognize that there are some patients who aren't able to take advantage of it at all. As we wrap up our time together, Dr. Prince, maybe you could give our audience some suggestions of ways that they can go about uh, promoting anti-racism uh, in the medical field in their daily routines. Sure. So anti-racism is often about the little things. 
you have to get the paper towels in your clinic from somewhere, right? You know, when the lights go out, you have to hire an electrician. If you are going to uh, have magazines on your waiting room table, they have to come from somewhere. So create a racial justice budget and support non-white vendors by purchasing goods and services from them. Get those paper towels from a Black-owned company. Hire a Hispanic electrician. Order a Black Enterprise magazine or a Jet magazine or Ebony magazine and have that on the waiting room table. And make sure the way you do this is you try and make your racial justice budget reflect population parity. So if you live in a town where Hispanic people are X percent of the population, try and make sure you're spending your outgoing dollars in accordance with population parity. And then uh, hold yourself accountable just as you make sure that you don't go over budget in your spending, make sure that you're not going under budget in your diversity efforts. And then when you're going to engage a white vendor, engage the ones that support diversity. And the way you can find them is by looking at their EEO1 report, which is a report that many businesses are required by the government to fill out that discloses their racial and gender demographic data for different job categories. And uh, other companies that aren't required to fill this out still often do so just to be you know, transparent. So seek those companies out too. And then just, as I said, think about your waiting room. Why not put um, these wonderful graphic novels that are coming out about the civil rights movement on that waiting room table? Why not put a coloring book about the civil rights movement there for the kids in your pediatrician's office to play with? Just make those small decisions that help promote anti-racism and just make that a daily part of running your practice. Great advice. My guest has been Dr. Shannon Prince. Her book is Tactics for Racial Justice. Dr. Prince, thank you so much for being on Sound Practice. Thank you so much for having me. My thanks to Dr. Shannon Prince. Dr. Prince's book, Tactics for Racial Justice, Building an Anti-Racist Organization and Community, is available to Sound Practice listeners at a discounted rate. You may receive the discount by going to the show notes for this episode and following the link with the discount code. My thanks also to the American Association for Physician Leadership for making this podcast possible. Please join me next time on Sound Practice. We drop a new episode every other Wednesday. You've been listening to Sound Practice, the business podcast for physicians and healthcare leaders. Check out the show notes for this episode at soundpracticepodcast.com. If you have any suggestions for future episodes, we'd love to hear them. Email us at info at soundpracticepodcast.com. Subscribe to Sound Practice wherever you listen to podcasts so you can automatically receive our episodes. And please rate us and comment on the podcast in iTunes and Google Play. Sound Practice is presented and produced by the team at American Association for Physician Leadership. We are the world's premier organization for all aspects of physician leadership in every sector of healthcare. Learn more at physicianleaders.org. Had his holy cow, that man and Robin went from Kapow.